This morning we turn back to the end of Luke chapter 21 and beginning of chapter 22. Luke 21 verse 37 through 22, 6. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Father, I ask that you would work through your word now, that you would apply this text, this account of the beginning of the betrayal of Christ, that it would be practical in our own hearts, that we would be drawn to Christ in light of this text. Father, I ask that you would do that work in Jesus' name. Amen. We all struggle in this world We struggle in our physical body ever since Adam sinned. Uh, We struggle in society. Every part of creation is groaning and struggling and hurting. And the answer is Christ. The answer is the gospel of Christ. And as we look at this account in slowly and minute detail, the reason why we do it is because it's the point of all things. And so one of the things we realize, even in this text that's before us, is we discover what type of world we live in. And that's the question I have for you is, do you know the world you live in? Are you a living according to true reality? Or are you living according to some ulterior reality that's in your mind, which actually doesn't exist? Are you living a life that is a delusion, where everything is just maybe physical or normal in the way the world would think of things. For example, how would we answer the question about what happened last week? More than likely, our answer would be about the events that took place in a merely physical world. I went to work, I shoveled the snow, I went to Wednesday night church, I washed the dishes, read a book, talked to a neighbor, etc., etc. 
it probably, your answer and probably my answer, wouldn't be this. I have been waging war in an epic battle for my soul and for the souls of others. The enemy has been relentless, attacking me, my family, and my neighbors every day. While I was doing laundry, the liar came and told told me that my life was insignificant. And he showed me others whose lives seemed more meaningful. When I got angry at the children, he told me that I was evil and that the kids would be better off without me and that God was wearied of me. I need more weapons. I need more help. My flesh is weak. The remaining sin inside me is relentless and dies hard. I know the time is short. And I know the days are evil and the enemy is fierce, but I am confident and I have hope because I remembered the gospel of Christ when I was reading my Bible. I was reminded of the hope of the gospel when I had a quick conversation with a brother at Walmart and when I was laying in bed thinking about a podcast about perseverance. And Wednesday night at church, our table was meditating on Colossians 2.2, and a dear sister shared about how she was encouraged in a certain trial by the brothers and sisters the Lord had given her. So you ask me, how was my week? I'm still in the fight. The war is Still raging hot, but I am hopeful and victory is sure. How was your week? Now, that's not how we respond when someone asks us, how was your week? And that was just an example of what's true for a believer in a normal, everyday Weak in reality. We learn that from this text and we will see that. And so the question, one of the questions today is, do you know the world that you are living in? And are you living according to true reality? Paul said things like this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Is that the world you live on? He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities. Now get this, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Is that the world you live in? Is that the reality that you, I know you know Ephesians 6 is in the Bible. The question is, is do you live your life as though it's actually true? You really think you just safely coast off into a day? 
without remembering the cross of Christ, without meditating on the gospel, without prayer? You really think it's safe? We don't get that from the scripture. We often live in a delusional life where life is just normal and merely physical. Even though Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2 is in our Bible. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Rarely would we say, even though I try to do this more and more often, rarely do we say, look, God is speaking. Look at the sunset. Look at the stars. Look in that microscope. Look at the mountains. Look at the 300-pound mule deer that prances like a horse, then bounces like a rabbit up a hill. Who thought of that? That animal that looks like a big block. I walk up one hill, and I can barely breathe. And that big 300-pound animal prances on these feet and then bounces like a rabbit. And all that is screaming the glory and the power of God. And this is our world. Ellen and I were walking back to the truck this weekend, and the sky was lit in the most vibrant colors you've ever seen. We're, we're sitting in pine trees in the grass and a chicken hawk comes whipping in right by us and the sky's lit up. And I look at Ella and say, we live in an incredible world, a spiritual world where even the physical things are speaking of the spiritual things. And the question is, is do you believe and do you see God speaking? Do you see his glory in all creation? Do you believe his revealed word in the scripture that tells us what type of world we live in? As we look at the account of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we dissect the details of it in the scripture, what we are doing is we're studying and meditating on this central event of all of history. The gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven for sinners so that when they trust in him, by faith, their sins can be forgiven. Christ's righteousness is put in their account. That is not just the beginnings of Christianity. That's the fuel for everything for all eternity. So, we won't apologize for going slow and looking at every aspect of this because this is the way we're meant to live. In fact, if you want to know if God 
is good and that God is love and that he's for you and that his steadfast love is never ending, you must meditate not on your present circumstances, but on the gospel of Christ. If you want to know God's love, if you want to know truth, you better meditate on the cross of Christ and not your present suffering, not your present circumstances. Brothers and sisters, God's providence is working for your good, was working for your good before the world began. He was working 2,000 years ago when all these little minute details and circumstances come together. The betrayal of Christ, the trials of Christ, all of it, the cross, the resurrection, every detail, God was working on your behalf for his glory. He promised his disciples that they would suffer and that they would be rejected by the world. I don't know what the biggest doubt in your mind was this morning about the goodness of God in your life. Could be finances. Could be health. It could be relationships. It could be work. Could be loneliness. And if you take those things, those difficulties, that suffering, and you look at it like this, the greatest, most potent, most evil lie there is, is God's not good. He's not good. His steadfast love doesn't endure forever. And the question is, is what are you meditating on? What are you looking at? Because here's what Jesus actually said to us. John 6, I've said these things to you so that you may have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. How can God be good? This is my circumstance. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to suffer. He said it. It doesn't mean God's not good. Or John 15, 19. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep your word. Or 2 Timothy 3.12, when Paul reminds young Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Or 2 Timothy 3.1, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. What do you meditate on? What are you looking at? What are you trying to grab onto to discern who God is and what he is like? First Timothy 4 Paul tells young Timothy, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, 
by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. Spiritual world we live in. And the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. The scripture also promises that even though there is suffering, that our suffering won't be in vain. 2 Corinthians 4.16 So we do not lose heart, though outwardly, our, though our outward self is wasting away, our inward self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. All this stuff that's true. The Bible doesn't say pretend like suffering isn't real. The Bible doesn't say uh, don't have compassion for people that are suffering in a fallen world. The Bible never makes light of suffering, but it does call it light and momentary in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. What's eternal weight look like that's prepared for believers? Romans 8.18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What's heavier, this 100-pound weight or a feather? You'll waste your time if you go to a scale and, and test that out. It's not worth comparing this suffering. When it's working for you, glory beyond glory. And Jesus also comforted his people with promises of his presence when he told them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. That he would never leave you or forsake you. He promised that he would overcome this present age with his kingdom and with the new heavens and the new earth. So think about it. If you zoom in on your present circumstances of life, to discern God's love and care for your life, you may begin to doubt the love of God for you as you struggle and you suffer. But if you study the central event of all of history, when God put his love on display by sending his only son to live a perfect life as a human being, truly man and truly God, to bear the punishment you deserve, bearing the guilt of your sins and dying under the fierce, omnipotent wrath of God, swallowing all of it up so there's not one ounce of wrath left. He therefore conquered sin, making satisfaction for it so that Romans 8.1 is true. There is now no there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There's none. So young mom who's doing laundry and you sense your heart isn't right or your life isn't important or you've yelled at your kids again and you're wondering if you're going to mess up their life. You might even be thinking about suicide. Neighbors all around us considering 
taking their own life. And yet you look at this account of the central event of the whole universe. And there's not one ounce of condemnation left for the sinner that turns to Christ. Jesus then rose from the dead because the author of life could not be held by death, being perfectly sinless in and of himself. He therefore conquered the grave, disarmed the devil and his demonic army. He disarmed them. Their powerful sword, which was accusation, and the fear of death was taken away. Now that you're forgiven the power of that, look at your sin. Look at what you're doing. Death is in store for you. You can't do it, so just live it up. Say, screw it to the world and just live for yourself. The power of the accusation of the devil is destroyed. His sword, he's disarmed of it in the gospel and you'll forget it if you quit looking at it. We are forgiven. We stand guiltless before God in heaven. And we also know that even our physical death will be conquered, will be raised like Christ was raised. And not only that, God has adopted you, Christian, into his family as a child of God, a true heir of all things in Christ, receiving eternal life in the present age and forevermore as the Holy Spirit resides in you even now. So we don't waste our time by digging deep into the most significant event in the world the world has ever known. We are reminded of the world we live in, even as we look at these seven or eight verses before us. And that long introduction is what we need to say to each other over and over and over again because we start to become deceived when we think that the gospel is, oh yeah, that's just the first things. Do you realize that everything before the cross of Christ looked for the cross? Everything after the cross of Christ looks back at the cross? All the New Testament is, is unpacking what happened there and that even for all eternity in heaven, the fuel for all our worship is going to be the cross of Christ. That when you get to the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus is referred to over and over and over again as the lamb. The one who paid the price. And so Peter says stuff like, I'm not going to apologize for reminding you again of these things because this is what we must do. I just read a tweet by Pastor Tim Keller last night where he said, I have stage four pancreatic cancer. But it is endlessly comforting to have a God who is both infinitely more wise and more loving than I am. 
He has plenty of good reasons for everything he does and allows that I cannot know. And therein is my hope and strength. How can he know that? Because he looks at the cross more than he looks at his pancreatic cancer. Because if he has a God that has reasons that his puny mind can't wrap his mind around, and his ways are higher than our ways, then even in his non-understanding, he takes comfort because his God is big and can understand things that we can't even understand. And then Burke Parsons said this, let us be more bothered by our sin than by our suffering. Which I thought was interesting. We're bothered by our suffering and when our circumstances go like this. But when we look at the cross of Christ, what does it tell us about our sin? And that was the first point we looked at last week. You know, how did this betrayal happen? How did the betrayal of Christ happened? How did Judas do it? And the first point we looked at last week was sin. Judas did it because he loved money. He loved money. Seems like he wanted compensation for three wasted years of his life as he saw that Jesus wasn't going to overthrow the Romans, that Jesus was speaking of his own death, and that true leadership comes from serving. It's as if Judas said, all right, I want out, and what can I get from it as I leave? And so as you sense sin in your own life, if you're looking at the cross, you'll take it serious. It took the death of the Son of God to cover that sin. Ironically and sadly, Ravi Zacharias said this famous quote, Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep, her than, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And Ravi in his own life got caught up in hidden sin. And he might have thought in his death that he got away with it. But after he passed away, sexual sin was revealed. The hiding of that sin was revealed. And so even those who know a lot and are really smart if you quit looking at that cross like a child and trembling at your own sin and repenting of it and coming to the cross, remember the world you live in. It's evil. And sin is, wants to have you. And the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion and that world is real. And so the next point, when we ask the question, how did the betrayal of Jesus happen is this spiritual warfare. Look at verses, 
Look at beginning in verse 2. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death. They didn't want to do it in public, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. We live in a spiritual world where the devil enters in to a human being. We live in a spiritual world where Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, Father, keep them from the evil one. How did the betrayal of Jesus Christ happen? One answer is because Satan entered in to Judas. Now it's important to understand that Satan is not sovereign. He was created by God, a glorious being, and he rebelled against God. Satan's footholds are seated in the hearts of sinful man. So Judas was not a victim. (laughs) Satan only has a foothold where the heart is wayward. When Satan came after Jesus in the wilderness, those temptations grabbed onto nothing because his heart was good. The temptation, Satan had, had nothing to grab onto. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. Those who are already unbelieving, he takes those opportunities and makes their minds more blind. We know from James 1, 13, he says, let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Satan, the tempter, can come, but we only bite on his bait if our heart in our is sinful, if our heart is idolatrous. <clears throat> but let us not forget that Satan wants control. He wants to take you farther than even you're thinking you want to go. Uh, in John 13, 1, this is interesting. We read this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that it is our come to depart from this world, uh, out of this world to the Father, having loved his own in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon the son to betray him. Now it's interesting. The devil had already put into the heart of Judas the desire to betray him before the devil actually came in to Judas's heart, into his life to take over. We know that it, although we live in a spiritual world, it's impossible for a Christian who has the Holy Spirit residing in them to have a demon or Satan 
enter into them. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It is true that unbelievers can be have, have been dwelt by demons. And it is true that demons and the devil have schemes against you as Christians. We live in a spiritual world. We see that in this text. Sometimes we read this like it's a story and it's not a real account of the world. But this is the world we live in. How did the betrayal happen? One good question to ask is, why would Satan bring about his own destruction? Why would he enter into Judas so that he would betray him and end up on a cross and then there, thereby being disarmed, therefore being crushed by the seed of the woman? Why would Satan take this suicidal move? Here's what we know. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I think the devil knew that. Colossians 1.13 says this. He, being Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. I think he knew that, in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. I think there's evidence that Satan didn't want him to go to the cross. The first would be the temptation in the wilderness. You're hungry? You're fasting? That's where your father has left you? I'll be a better father to you, son. I'd give you bread right now. Turn that stone into bread and eat. Look at this. Look at this. Your father wants you to suffer? Wants you to bear the sins of the world? Let me show you the world. I'll just give it to you right now. You don't have to go through all of that. I'll just give you the whole world. Your popularity isn't going so good, come up here, throw yourself down from the temple. They'll see a great miracle and then trust in you. Any of those offers taken up by Christ would have been sinful. And you and I would have no hope. We'd be lost in the world. Everyone would experience justice at the hand of God for their sin. And then I think most clearly, we see it in Matthew 16, 21. When we read, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
So when Peter said, no cross, Christ, no way are you going to the cross. Jesus knows that Peter is under the influence of Satan himself because Satan does not want him going to the cross. And then we see it in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's sweating drops of blood as he's about to bear the sins of man on his shoulder. And so here's the problem. Why would he enter in? The sure answer is this. Sin and evil has never been consistent. It's never been consistently logical. It's insane. We do insane things when we sin. We make insane choices. Momentary pleasure for eternal pleasure. That's crazy. That's ludicrous. And yet the world says that's normal. If you take up your cross and follow Christ, you're a fool. You give your money to the gospel rather than build mansions for yourself. You're nuts. And yet who's insane? Who is crazy? Those who are going to swing out into eternity on their own righteousness and stiff arm the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's crazy. So one answer to the question is... Satan is enslaved to his greatest desire and his greatest desire is to do evil and it's very evil to kill the son of God. And within that view, it might be Satan sees that Christ is so determined to go to the cross that he finally says, fine, I'm going to make it the most hellish experience you've ever seen and pour it out on you. A view that John MacArthur holds that's an interesting one. I mean, here's where we're kind of guessing. We don't know for sure. But the people are afraid of the crowds. They're afraid that if you go against Jesus publicly, the crowds are going to turn on him, right? And the devil is not sovereign. He doesn't know the future. He's not all-knowing. He can't know the future. So MacArthur says probably what happened is the devil realized if we get the trial of Jesus going to the cross to happen publicly, it'll never happen. The people will stand with Christ so that even the devil underestimates the sinfulness of man. When the crowds surprisingly say, crucify him, and now the unthinkable, which you would never guess, the Sunday before they're hailing him as their king and now they're saying crucify him so maybe the devil was thinking hey passover's coming <laughs> if this happens publicly there's no way the crowds will let them kill jesus we don't know but we do know that sin is insane we just judah says how much will you give me 30 pieces of silver that's four months wages that's the price of a slave. Okay, I'll take the 30 pieces of silver. 
And it isn't long, he comes back, he throws that silver into the temple, and he goes and commits suicide. Where's the logical progression there? It's insane. And then the last point, where is God in all this? Where is God? The answer is, and the thing the gospel makes clear, is he's everywhere. He's planning every detail of this wicked event while people are doing exactly what they want to do. And so God's sovereignty and man's will stand perfectly alongside each other. Those who hate Christ do exactly what they want to do. The devil does exactly what he wants to do. And God's plan is fulfilled exactly the way he planned. And you should take comfort, like Tim Keller does, in things that are beyond even what we can understand. Our God's bigger than our minds. We see this everywhere. You know, when Mary's told that she's going to give birth to a son, she's also told a sword will pierce through your own soul. Luke 9.22, Jesus predicts that the Son of Man will suffer and be rejected and killed and on the third day be raised. Luke 13.33, he says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. God's perfect plan is taking place exactly how he wanted it to take place. As the most evil event in human history is unfolding, our sovereign God's plan is also unfolding perfectly, which is a comfort to those who suffer in the present that it's not in vain, that it's not without wisdom from God, you'll probably never know. Job never understood. We get to see what was happening behind the scenes. He didn't. But he was left with the best thing. He remembered God is God and God is good. In Acts 2.22 and I'm going to finish with these two texts in, from Acts. Here's what Luke, who also wrote Acts, so it's Luke-Acts. This is the account for Theophilus about Christ in the early church. In, Luke, or in Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, this is Peter, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see both of them there? God's definite plan them killing because they're evil. That's what they want to do. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was po not possible for him to be held by it. And then in Acts 4.24, he says a similar thing. After his sermon, when they were 
uh, heard it, they lifted up their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, uh, who through the mouth of our father David and servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and, the, and his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with all the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. This evil act, where's God at in every detail? As we're going to continue to see all the way through the end of Luke, you're going to see God's sovereign hand work for the good of his people, even in the midst of evil. Father, I pray that even as we look at these verses and we see the wickedness of sin, Father, and as we see the spiritual war that takes place. We live in a spiritual world and we see how you're even sovereign over Satan and those who are rebelling against you. Father, I pray that it would cause all of us to worship you. Father, that there'd be no person here that is willing to go on in this world, this present darkness, when they can be rescued, they can be transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. Father, I pray that we would all be reminded of the importance of pointing to the gospel, to one another, sharing this with one another, reading this, listening to this, studying our Bibles, which point to the cross. Father, thank you for the good news. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.